I know that uh, in this season of the year, as we begin, there are lots of opportunities to just recognize the beginning of a new year. Uh, I won't ask you to indicate this, but I wonder how many of your New Year's resolutions have already been broken. I won't ask you to acknowledge that publicly for fear of embarrassment. But the truth is, as we start a year, and rightfully so, it's an occasion to stop and ponder uh, different things that we wish to accomplish. I don't know if you've observed that at this time of the year, I'm not a real avid TV watcher, but it seems like during this stage, and correct me if I'm wrong, that there's more emphasis upon, you know, exercise programs and physical fitness programs and diet programs that are advertised on television. You know, go low and Nutrisystem and, you know, etc. I even saw one here recently where they were offering you a chance to go into this, you know, training physical fitness program and you could earn money doing it. I guess you wager as to how much you're going to lose. I don't know. I didn't follow it and that's not my cup of tea. But the truth is, lots of emphasis and increased emphasis upon memberships, maybe at the Y. Maybe you've taken up a new exercise program. I mentioned this graduation on Wednesday. I was there with these folk in preparation for the service. One of the uh, persons that works there at the prison complex named Dan uh, came up to me and we were talking and he was expressing some particular facet of his beginning of a new year. And he said, I'm drinking lots of water this year. And he said, I don't like water. And he was complaining about his new you know, resolution to drink water instead of Coke this year. You know, I don't know what your facet of complaint might be or interest. But the truth is, I think this is a chance to also not only pause and maybe evaluate whether we're healthy, but whether we're spiritually healthy. One of my privileges as an itinerant is to be ignorant. Uh, maybe that's not because of itineracy, but as I come to a place like this, few of you that I know very well, that's my loss. But I have the privilege to come with a measure of unencumbered awareness and seek to bring to attention maybe thoughts that might be less than comfortable if we knew each other better. This is no accusation, but it is an opportunity for evaluation, and that is this. What is your spiritual health? What is your spiritual health? Are you physically fit? Concerning, yes. But are we spiritually fit? Even more concerning. That spiritual fitness is not measured by, you know, our efforts to, you know, as it were, promote our own spiritual status or standing. But it is an occasion to try and evaluate according to scriptural principles and guidelines how God wants us to truly be spiritually healthy. And so at the start of a new year, it's a chance to just pause and, as it were, evaluate our spiritual condition. This morning, I'd invite you to do that with me as we look together at a portion of Scripture. If you've not turned there, 1 John chapter 2, a portion of Scripture that is clearly addressed to believers. This is not a portion that is addressing the lost. And so without any apology, this is an instructional manual for Christians. I pause and say, if you've never placed your trust in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, this is not directly going to help you until you are his child, but it lets you know the great opportunity that's before you as you place your trust in Christ. And that would be my plea that you will indeed believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. But in the context, I'm sure, of this gathering, uh, majority, maybe all, have indicated that moment where you've come to a personal relationship with Christ. And this passage gives us some very clear instruction 
about how our spiritual health should be assessed and reviewed. I've chosen to arrange it around three questions as you take your notes, if you wish to complete those from your bulletin, three questions that we must answer for our New Year's checkup. 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 through chapter 3, verse 3. I give you just this little backdrop that the chapter division here is not the most suitable to the flow of the message of the passage. And so uh, this is one where we'll just move right past the chapter break because the message continues around the same thought. And this morning we'll take these verses and seek to bring to attention these three questions that we need to ask ourselves or we need to answer for ourselves as we review our spiritual health. Would you join me in following? I'll read these verses as you listen. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in Him, that when He shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of Him. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the children of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Clear instructions now as we take this spiritual examination to determine our fitness in this new year. Question number one is this, are you abiding in Him? Are you abiding in Him? Now before you just glibly or maybe quickly answer that question, I think we need to see the passage as it unfolds and and conveys that thought more explicitly. And so with that in mind, I'd like you to just follow these features under answering that question, are you abiding in Him? And note first of all, the immediacy of abiding the immediacy of abiding. This isn't something that is future in the sense of heaven. This isn't something that's related to then senior citizenship of spirituality. This isn't something that's just initial as we start our conversion experience with the Lord. This is something that is prevalently and permanently and constantly our responsibility. And now, little children... The immediacy. This is not something to defer or delay. This is something to do. And so with a sense of urgency, we should respond with immediacy. And now, little children, and now, little children, the immediacy of abiding. But then would you note, secondly, the intent of abiding. What's involved? What does it mean to abide? There are a couple of corollary passages that I just invite you to note with me as we think of that particular intent of abiding. Uh, We move back a page or so from our location in 1 John and and look at, if you would please, the portion of Scripture of 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6 says, He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. In this passage, we see that abiding describes the fact that there ought to be a a harmony in our relationship with God. As He walks, so we walk. And a walk is not a simple exercise of a particular 
gait or step. It's describing a behavioral testimony, our genuine knownness, our usual behavior, our walk should be in harmony with his walk. So what does it mean to abide? It means that I'm harmonious with what he is. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself so to walk, behave, live as he did. That's the first thought of this intent of abiding. It's the harmony that we have with him. But note, if you would further and move back to the Gospel of John now, to this very familiar passage that has repeated references to abiding. 1 John is a passage that has this in place, chapter 15, in this great account of the vine and the branches. And and we pick up particularly with verse 4 and move down through verse 7. And if you'll just allow me to read this portion, and would you highlight in your mind, or maybe literally in your Bible, the frequency of the word abide. Verse 4, abide in me, Jesus was saying to his disciples in that upper room discord, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches, he that abideth in me, and I in him. The same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. To me, this portion now amplifies the intent of abiding as the the, the being at home with him. This this intimacy and, and consistency of familiarity And so the intent of abiding is the harmony of my life with the Savior and the home behavior that I have with the Savior. I'm at home with Him. You know, that description is one that I personally relate to maybe in some sense more than some of you. My life is is one that's pretty itinerant. I travel uh, frequently, not because I like to necessarily. Any of you that travel a lot know that it's romanticism quickly is gone. You know, these days, especially, public transportation is a mess. And uh, I was saying, even as I came in on Thursday night, and, and uh, Brother Hodak picked me up, I said, you know, he asked how my flight went. I said, well, you know, these days, if a flight goes well, I say something went wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and things went well, so if something went wrong, I got here okay. But my point is this. Uh, in the course of those travels, uh, not so much since COVID, and that's not, you know, a complaint, it's just a fact, But uh, before COVID, even more so, I would find myself often hosted in a home and uh, persons would make these kinds of references as I'd arrive in their home. They would express a welcome and and you said it probably to your guest. Just make yourself, oh, come on, you can do better than that. Just make yourself at home. Yeah, you're afraid to talk back. You know, maybe you don't talk back to him. You can talk back to me, but don't do it when I'm gone. Is that a fair exchange there, Pastor Matt? I love this guy to death. But the truth is this. People say that all the time. Make yourself at home. I've had other things like, for example, take off your shoes. We don't care if you have holes in your socks. I don't know if you've ever said that to a guest or not. I've had that said to me. And my response was, my wife cares if I have holes in my socks and I don't, you know. Or here's one. I'll have occasions where particularly, uh, you know, sometime in a northern setting like Minnesota, uh, where I might be for an extended meeting from maybe a Sunday through a Wednesday or something, as that's occasion sometimes, and they'll place me in a home where a snowbird's gone to Florida. And so I have the house to myself. They give me a key, 
They even often give me a car to use as I'm there. Little stick tack notes all over the house. Here's where this is. Here's where that is. You know, use the fridge, use the, you know, the laundry. And, and, and wonderful acceptance into that home. And I basically am there all by myself. But you know, every one of those occasions, whether it's a single stop or an extended stop, I am never at home there. You know why? It's pretty simple. It's not my home. Yeah. As warm and accepting and gracious as you would be or others have been, there's something that's missing. It's called my home. I want to pause and say without any reservation, to be at home with God requires that you know Him as personal Savior. You cannot be at home if you do not know Him. And so if you've never come to that moment where you need to trust Jesus, I'd take this occasion right now to say that the Bible's clear that without Jesus as your Savior, not because I want it or because I am happy to say it, but honestly and fairly and transparently to you, without Jesus as your Savior, the Bible's very clear, you are on your way to a Christless destination called hell. And we don't like to talk about it much, and the world mockingly used the term, but can I tell you it's a serious, serious destination of constant foreverness. If you've never trusted Christ as Savior, you have a destination which we probably would not use the word home to describe because it it is so horrible beyond imagination. But you don't have to go there because Jesus died and took your place, not as a martyr, not as a victim, but as a substitute. He paid the price that God required for you and me to be eligible to come into the presence of God, to be at home with Him. I wonder, have you recently reveled as a Christian in the privilege to be at home with God? Not just heaven, but right now, the beauty and the preciousness of His presence. In His presence, there is peace. In His presence, there is joy. I hope that you'll find yourself pausing and evaluating your spiritual standing. Are you truly abiding because you're at home with Him? That's the intent of abiding. But as we move along in our passage, immediacy now, intent, abide. Why? We see the importance of it next that when He shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. The importance of abiding. This is no random choice. This is no you know, cheap alternative. This is no you know, nice idea. This is, a, this is a significant circumstance that has implications that are serious. We need to be abiding in Him, not to be earning our salvation or keeping our salvation, but because the status and the standing of our salvation makes it such that when He appears, there's a chance we will be embarrassed at His coming. This is a rapture reference, and 
I firmly believe in the biblical teaching of the rapture of the believer and the, and the calling out of the saints before the horrors of the tribulation period, which is a, a Jewish destination event. And, and in that sense of the word, the, the opportunity of the rapture is eminently there here in the first century, already looking for its return as though it could happen and it could have. Nothing has to occur before it can happen. At this moment, before this service is over, the rapture could happen. I hope you believe that. If you don't, you will if it happens, I promise. (laughs) The truth is this. John says, why should we abide? Be at home and in harmony with him? Because when he comes, there's not going to be time to change who we are by way of our testimony or our behavior. You've probably heard illustrations of being sort of aware of an unexpected arrival of someone. I remember as a child, one occasion my parents were going to be gone for a couple of days and, and indicated when their return was planned. And, and so we were responsible to sort of maintain things at home like it would have been if they were there. And, and uh, you know, in our assumption of their absence, we didn't. In an obvious thing called doing the dishes. And maybe you've had similar moments and so we had sort of said, well, we'll just wait and just have one of these major marathon dish activities and, and do it before they get here. And to our chagrin, my parents came home early. Needless to say, there was a lot of dish doing real fast. And for days to come, dish doing. <laughs> and for weeks to come, dish doing. <laughs> now, we were embarrassed at his coming or at their coming. I say this with a seriousness that's not causing us to dread his coming, but we should live with an awareness that he could come at any moment. He could. Will we be ashamed at his coming? I'm reminded of an incident that happened with my father's passing. Uh, My father's uh, occasion of home going was unexpected. In fact, is my wife and I at the time of his passing all uh, both of our parents, my wife's parents and my parents, were living. And we'd sometimes speculate as to what would be the likelihood of which one would pass first. We weren't wishing it, but we were just sort of thinking and planning. Every scenario that we ever had, my father was always the last one that we predicted that would die. Wonderful health, very disciplined. He was the sort of guy that would weigh himself every day, and if he was a pound different, it would be off by the end of the day. I mean, that's the kind of guy he was. And yet, on this occasion... God saw fit to strike him with a brain aneurysm. The first of our four parents went into a coma and with a matter of unexpectancy is gone in days. I remember going out to my mother. My parents lived in Iowa and I was in West Virginia at the time of his occasion of his uh, uh, aneurysm. I was actually on tour along with my wife with our uh, spring choir tour in Tennessee and got the phone call that Dad was in the hospital, unconscious, and uh, not with prospect of surviving. And I remember saying to my mom, should we come right now? She said, no, there's really nothing you can do right now. Just finish your tour. We had two more days. And so we finished, and then my wife and I got a plane, and and we're on our way to Iowa to try and be with my father and mother. And uh, actually, as we were in Chicago making connections, I was supposed to call my uncle, who was going to pick us up at the airport in Omaha. Uh, They lived in the Council Bluffs area, my parents. And and so at that point... uh, 
uh, I was going to call my uncle and just confirm our get, catching our flight. And, and he says, uh, Dan, he said, uh, your mother said to tell you that your father just passed away. So there's really no need for you to come on. You can just go back home. And she knew we'd be coming out with our children later. And I said, no, I said, Uncle Herbert, I said, no, I'm going to go ahead. We're going to go ahead and come. I said, I want to be with my mom. And um, it was a touching time. I don't mind saying I, my, my emotions are still very surface as I talk about this. So it's been years ago. And uh, as we got there, uh, the privilege of then working with my mom as she was having to go through the unexpected planning of a funeral and, and uh, selecting of a casket, I can still see she was just a little short lady, about four foot ten, and, and she was around the, the, even the, you know, the display room of the casket. She just was hardly tall enough to see them, and, and she would walk from one to the other, and she finally came to this one. She just sort of touched it lovingly and said, Dan, this is the one. And, uh, but the thing that I'll remember most is People would say to my mother in those hours and days, her name was Lily, and they would say, Lily, it must have been awfully hard for you not to be able to tell Leroy, that was my father's name, goodbye. This aneurysm had struck so quickly. And my mother's answer, I'll never forget, I heard it often, but the first one really struck me most because I heard it first. She said, oh, she called him daddy. She said, oh, daddy and I didn't have any scores to settle. That's okay. And I thought to myself, what an illustration of being prepared for the coming of Christ. Do you have any scores or issues to settle? The importance of abiding. He is returning. It could be today. Will you be embarrassed at His coming? A physical, spiritual exam. The importance of abiding. But then we find, fourthly, this first question, are you abiding, is this. What is the indicator of abiding? The indicator. Look at that verse that follows. It says this. If ye know, or literally, since ye know that he is righteous, referring to the Lord Jesus, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. You know what the indicator of abiding is? It's as simple as this. We live righteously. It's that simple. Now, righteous might sound like a big theological term, but I'll give you, a, you know, a, a, an Anderson simple answer because that's where I live, and that is this. Righteousness is right like God sees it. <laughs> that's what righteousness is. Now, I know it's got lots of other theolo theological implications, so don't be insulted by that simplicity, but the truth is, if we were driven by determination to say, I want to do right like God sees it, can I tell you, that's the indicator of abiding. We want to be like Him. And so the question is this morning, are you abiding in Him? Which leads to our second question as we examine, and that is this. Are you anonymous to the world? Are you anonymous to the world? That's verse 1 of chapter 3. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew Him not. Note the selection status we have, first of all. The selection is this. We get to be called His children. Wow. Imagine it. God risked His reputation to claim us. Now that's amazing. I sometimes will say to our students at Appalachian, you know, as I'm talking or maybe encouraging them or sometimes exhorting them, I'll say, you know, I'm glad some of you aren't my family. <laughs> you 
You say, you're an awful hard guy to talk to your students that way. They know I love them and we have plenty of conversations, but I say, you know, I'm glad. But I said, the truth is, you're probably glad I'm not your dad too. (laughs) But here's God. Behold, we get to be called His children. Wow. If that doesn't, you know, incite your heart to joy and enthusiasm and gratitude, you might want to check your pulse to see if you're alive. What a great privilege. The selection status that we have in this question, are you anonymous to the world? But then the second thing that follows is the rejection status. The rejection status. Therefore, the world doesn't know us. I wonder if we're so concerned about being accepted and, and you know, somewhat uh, you know, comfortable. Uh, several years ago, I had a friend that said to me, you know, the longer you live and walk with God, the less comfortable you should be in Walmart. And it took me a moment to understand what he was saying, but he's right. You know what, and this is no insult. If you work at Walmart, God bless you, and I'm not insulting the chain or talking about it in any way other than to say this. What that place is all about is not what we should ultimately be consumed with. And if that wrecks your afternoon of shopping, so be it. (laughs) My point is this. This world should not be comfortable to us. And we should feel the sense of tension because we don't fit. That's not an invitation to go into a cloister or to go into some kind of a, a, you know, a removal mode. But we should recognize we are not of this world. Therefore, the world doesn't know us. And so I ask you, are you more concerned about the comfort of acceptance and fitting Or do you even subconsciously allow this world's value system and its its, behavior, habits to be so comfortably yours that it's really no different than the person who's never trusted Christ as Savior? That should not be. Our spiritual exam should bring to light how we are truly misfits in this world. And so with that question, are you anonymous to the world? Revel in the selection of being his child, but realize that brings about the rejection of this world system. Are you anonymous to the world? Our third and final question is this. Are you abolishing sin? Are you abolishing sin? Verses two and three continue to build upon this thought and says, therefore, beloved, Now are we the children of God. This isn't a future status of heaven. Right now we're His children. Right now we're the children of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we'll be like Him. We'll see Him as He is. Just note four quick thoughts on this abolishing of sin question, and that is this. Note the premise of it, first of all. What what gives us even the opportunity to abolish sin? We have this premise. We are right now His children. What a great, great honor and privilege. Would you, without getting too carried away so I don't you know, ever get a chance to come back again, would you just you know, say as enthusiastically but tastefully as possible, praise the Lord? Praise the Lord. Are they still okay? I just want to make sure if that's too excessive. You know, no, the truth is, praise the Lord. We're His children. Wow. That's the premise of abolishing sin. We have a whole different family. But now we see the, if you will, the, the prospect of doing that. It doesn't appear what we shall be right now, 
And I'm not here to dismiss or excuse our failures, but we're going to. We have all sinned this morning. I don't say that with accusation. I just say it with realization. We have all sinned in some way this morning, undoubtedly. And the question is this, you know, should we just coddle that and accept that, or should we seek to determine in our hearts we're going to overcome that and grow beyond that? You know, the, the prospect is that someday we will be like Him. Won't that be a glorious day, huh? That's an amen. Yeah, thank you. That's an amen moment. Someday we will be like Him. Wow. That's the prospect of abolishing sin. With this particular third thought in our there, the process is this. Verse 3, every man that hath this hope in him. What hope? The hope of being like Him. The hope of being with Him. Everyone that has this hope in Him purifieth himself. That's the process of abolishing sin. I am responsible. You know what it says, purifieth himself. It doesn't say, he will purify. I am responsible, you're responsible as a Christian to be exercising that testimony of attempted purity as we live for God. And so the process of abolishing sin, Lord, help me to be pure. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary. Pure and holy, tried and true. With thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary for you. That's the process. But note this concluding thought on that question of abolishing sin, and that is this. The pattern for abolishing sin is given. Verse 3. Even as he is pure. This is not percentage Christianity. This is not you know, coddling our condition because we compare it with an inferior you know, person. I don't do what they do. I don't go where they go. And we feel good about ourselves. But the truth is this. The only comparison that we can rightfully make is this with him. Be holy as I am holy. That's the pattern of abolishing sin. Not percentage Christianity, but pure patterned Christianity. Like him. Like him. I close with this question or thought. We must be spiritually fit to effectively serve. We must be spiritually fit to effectively serve. This morning, my friends, without any accusation, but with no apology, it's a good time as we start a calendar new year to pause and just evaluate and, and assess your spiritual fitness. In fact, I'd like to encourage us to maybe come up with a little way to remember to do that. And if this doesn't work for you, that's fine. But here's a suggestion. Every time you have some temptation or some invitation to think about physical fitness, whether it's that commercial on television, which you might be appropriately watching, or whether it's the passing of that you know, establishment in town that has this you know, workout fitness center or whatever. Every time you see a circumstance that reminds you about your physical health, or maybe when you step on the scale and you say, whoops, I've got to, I don't know what it might be. Or maybe when you feel the aches and pains because you're not physically fit. I'm, I'm, I'm saying this by way of just a broad category of reminder. Every time you experience a reminder of your need for physical fitness, would you just pause and say, what about my spiritual fitness? Am I truly, truly, spiritually healthy as I should? I remind you again, we must be spiritually fit to effectively serve. And so my closing thought is this. 
What is your spiritual health report? What is your spiritual health report? As you come from a physical at the doctor, if your doctor has this protocol as mine does, twice a year I have a a complete physical review. And then he sends me this very thorough and detailed report from blood work to the works. Usually with his markings of a little concerned about this level, got to work on this level, need to supplement this pill now or this vitamin, whatever. May you and I find our hearts at the direction of the Spirit of God, saying, as it were, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my ways and see if there be any wicked way in me. Would you bow with me in prayer, please? As we bow in these moments, I would invite you to just not look around, but look inside. What do you and God see? And quite honestly, all of us, as we walk with the Lord, undoubtedly find areas that we need to deal with in order to more effectively be spiritually fit. And so those are good reminders. I need to work on this or that. But maybe there's a specific area that God brings to your attention. I'm not going to try and list some suggestions. I have confidence in the Spirit of God to bring it to your attention. But could I beg of all of us as believers in this room to not leave without learning what the, what the exam of our hearts has indicated and determining with God's grace to deal with those areas. And again, I would remind you if you've come today as one who's never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, oh, what a great way to start this year. Jesus loved you. He died for you. He was buried. He rose again, showing that he could conquer the most evident proof of sin, and that's death. He can deal with any of your sin and can forgive you if you will call upon the name of the Lord, acknowledge your need of of his substitute death for you, his shed blood caring for your sin. And the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I beg of you, make that decision. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the clear instruction of this portion of Scripture as to how we should review our lives. And I pray that we will truly be determined to be spiritually fit so we can effectively serve. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.